I'm going to jump right into the text. Uh, we have spent three weeks uh, in, in, in the book of Matthew. We had a week of introduction, touched on a genealogy of 17 verses. We returned to that genealogy, making six total points over one and a half weeks. Last week, we looked at the birth of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and how that all fell out. He almost divorced her, but he didn't because of a dream by an angel. And now we come down to the fallout. We're going to move after the birth of Christ uh, to, again, a very familiar scene. Here we are in February. We just talked and sang a lot about this a couple of months ago. Verse number 1 of chapter 2 of Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So this is what happened, where it happened, a little bit of a time frame. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, not the one up north, the one in Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Behold, now something else happens in this aftermath. Behold, wise men, if you have the ESV Bible there, if if that's what you're following along, you have a little note down there. The Greek word there would mean magi. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So we're given a direction. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying. And the word saying there, what it means is they kept on saying. This wasn't one time. They kept on asking. What? Verse 2. Where is he? Where is he? Where's who? Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, fellas, get together. We've got a report here. Something's going on. You've heard what's troubling the city. It's troubling me. Where's the Christ supposed to be born? I need some information. Well, he turned to the right source. Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. That's the answer to the question. For so it is written by the prophet. They literally know. They can cite. They can turn right to it. And then they read for him what's written by the prophet Micah 700 years earlier. Verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And after that, Herod summoned the wise men. He got his piece of information from the priests and scribes. So verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly. Ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Hey, man, it's really good to have you fellows with us. Man, glad to have you here. Hope all your needs are met. Um, we're going to answer your question uh, that you guys are asking. Um, so how long have you been in town? Yeah. How, how long did it take you to get here? Wow, that long. So it probably took you a while to get your stuff together. Oh, yeah. Ultimately, guys, what I really want to know is when did you see this star? I'm trying to piece it all together. So, verse 8, 
He's asking them these questions, ascertaining a time period, and he sent them to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's where you want to go, saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Translate, it's really important to me to know where this Christ child is. I want to get in on this worship. Be sure you come back and let me know where he's at. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What? Okay, Matthew, I think we got it. No. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, opening their treasures, not closing them, they offered him gifts, unique ones, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Hey guys, can we acknowledge right here that this is a fairly familiar passage to us. The older you are, the more songs you've heard, the more stories you've heard. Uh, But what we need to be careful here is to acknowledge that there's a lot in this passage we do not know. And we have arbitrarily filled in blanks that the scripture has not done. Some of the things we do not know are how many wise men. Perhaps some of you, you had a picture and you, you pictured three dudes crossing the desert with camels. Maybe, probably not. We don't know how many wise men there were. We don't know exactly where they came from. We have a direction. They came from the east. And I'm going to offer to you the most probable choices from the east that would be magi, wise men, would probably place them coming at least 1,500 miles. But there's options out there where they would have come from. So we don't know how many. We don't know exactly where they came from. Here's a big one. What we don't know, what is not told us in this text, is what makes them associate a star with a baby, a baby that is born, a Jewish baby that is going to be the king of the Jews. They don't tell. How do you guys connect those dots? What in the world does a star have to do with a Jewish king being born? Another thing that we really don't know is the nature of this star. We're not told. Now, I know as I say that, there are going to be some people who hear that and, and they've studied it out and they have strong opinions. I get that. All I would say is be careful. You're only speculating. You're only speculating. Some people believe it was an actual star, a real star. Some people believe it was a supernova, a star that is kind of being compromised and getting ready to, and it was, you know, getting brighter and waning and brighter and waning, and that's what they saw. Some say, no, 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 it was a comet, and they've studied these things out, and they've gone back to a comet coming around 12 B.C. and another around 4 or 5 B.C., and that may line up exactly with this time, and they've all got their theories. I'm going to give you my little two cent here. I don't think it was an actual star or a supernova or a comet. I'm going to tell you the reason why. I think those would be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to follow from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Let this sink in. If it was an actual literal star, and we know we have one pretty near to us, it's only uh, 93 million miles away, right? 
If it's another star, to me it would be really hard to follow. And again, my arm's not long enough. We have this star really, really high, and they're in Jerusalem. And how do you follow that star from Jerusalem to Bethlehem from here to here? And you're like, from where to where? You saw it here to here. Where to where? Here to here. You're like, oh, but you're not. Yeah, I'm moving my finger. They're going from here to here, right? How do you follow? I saw it, and let's go from here to here. That would be really, really difficult. So call me simple. I'm pretty simple. But I'm kind of of a belief, like last week with the virgin birth, I don't think it would be a hard thing for God to form, um, create, prepare, however you want to look at it, a special, temporary, specific light to guide these wise men. I don't think that would be a very hard thing for God to do at all. And so I kind of lean toward that. Would I die for that? Absolutely not. I would also offer this. The text does not say that the wise men coming from the east followed the star to Jerusalem. What it says is they see this star somehow, some way. They are told and associated with a king of the Jews. And so the, the text, if you really look at it multiple times, what it seems to hint at, they see the star, they prepare, they come. They come to Jerusalem, which makes sense, the capital city of the Jews. They start asking questions. They get an answer where it is. And then the star appears to them again and leads them to the specific place. So I want to make three points today. Three points. I think three main ideas out of this text that is again fairly familiar to us. Number one is a fulfilled prophecy. I think that's a key thing here. A fulfilled prophecy. I'm looking at a congregation this morning. Most of you are believers. Most of you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord. You already believe that. But I want to encourage you. You see I'm already there. Keep growing in your understanding. Why do you believe this? This is a key point in the whole scheme of things. Know why you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Don't take someone's word for it. Why? Well, here's a fulfilled prophecy. Now, let me disclaimer. The amount of time I'm going to give this point as opposed to the others is going to seem like what I'm about to say is untrue. This is the main point of the text. A prophecy fulfilled, Matthew's main purpose here is to show that Jesus, who this book is about, the gospel of Jesus, according to Matthew, Jesus was born in the exact place that the Old Testament predicted 700 years earlier where the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king, would be born. Jesus was born there. Now, let's be honest. Bethlehem is the city of David, and as the city of David associated with David, remember there's this tax and they have to go back to their homeland. I'm going to tell you, Jesus would not have been the only baby, the only boy that is born in Bethlehem. It's a small town, but more babies would have been born there, more boys would have been born there. I'm going to contend in that time period, more babies that after that thousand years since David, they could run their lineage back to, to David as well. You say, so then that kind of destroys the idea that Jesus is the Christ. No, here's the point. He's not the only baby born in Bethlehem, but if he is the Christ, he had to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus checks that box along with over 300 more prophecies. That's Matthew's point. He had to be born in Bethlehem. By the way, that's where he was born. That's his point that he's making. Bethlehem is not only the city of David, it is Bethlehem. It has a name, it has a meaning. Some of you, like I am, have just recently finished Genesis in your Bible study. And so you read where Jacob comes and has this God encounter. And he ends up naming the place Bethel. 
El Shaddai, Elohim, El Hey, El Roi, El means God. Beth El, he calls it the house of God. Here we have Bethlehem, house, Beth, Bethlehem, house of what? House of bread. And it's not an accident that later on Jesus will refer to himself as the bread of life. What he means is spiritually, if you want to go to heaven, you want to have spiritual eternal life, then you must take him, the bread of life, into yourself and appropriate him into your life as if someone who wants to live physically has to take physical bread and food into their life. You want to have eternal life? You need to have the bread of life born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. Check the box. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. That's the main point. But that's not the only point I want to see this morning. Number two, differing responses to Jesus. Did you see this in the text? I wish sometimes you guys, and I want to encourage you, go ahead and do this next week. Read verses 13. I'm assuming I'm going to go through verses 23 next week. Go ahead and read that multiple times and come prepared. If you were teaching on this, what what do you think the main points would be? Well, I think this is one of the main points we can't miss. Listen to me. Watch. For 2,000 years, since Jesus has been revealed to us, people have had differing responses to Jesus. I believe the three main responses that people have to Jesus are all in this text. Three main responses, all in this text. Let's begin with Herod. Number one, here's the response. Herod was filled with hatred. Herod was filled with hatred upon his revelation of Jesus. He's filled with hatred. Now, before I talk negatively about Herod, I want to be honest. Herod had a long reign, and history says some good things about Herod. He's called Herod the Great. He ends up coming into Palestine, Israel, and he's part of a battle. He ends up winning the battle, and and they drive the Parthians out of this region. And because of that, they need a king over the Jews. And so Rome, who's ultimately in charge of the region, appoints Herod as the king of Judea. And so he's going to reign 35 years or so before Christ. Now, the good things that I can say about Herod is once the peace was gained, ultimately, he was pretty good at keeping the peace. By and large, the peace was kept among the people. Secondly, I could say that Herod had some generous streaks to him. There was a big famine that came along, and he gave to poor people. He even sells some gold that would be like his gold, but he sells it and gives to the Jews. So he's generous to them. Keeps the peace. He's generous Ultimately, the best thing that most people would say about him is this guy is a builder. I mean, a big-time builder. He's a visionary. Okay, I thought this morning we've had 44 presidents. There are some presidents that leave a bigger mark than other presidents. You can think of some well under that one. That started and that started. Well, they did a lot, and others of them, you're like, I have no idea what they did. I guess they filled the office for four or eight years. I don't know what they did. It's the same thing. CEOs of a company. Some make a big splash, leave leave a big mark. Same thing with pastors. I've been, I've had four or five pastors in my life, and some I can point to and say, that was the teaching pastor. That was the guy that was really good at administration. That's the guy that loved people. And I've had one or two. I'm like, I don't even know what his mark on the ministry was. My point here is Herod is a kind of guy who left his mark big time in Palestine. Again, he was a builder. He built whole cities. Builds aqueducts, roads, buildings, fortresses. 
Again, whole cities. He's most well known for renovating the temple. So you had Solomon's temple, but the Babylonians destroy it hundreds of years earlier. The Jews get to come back later on, back to their homeland. And they kind of rebuild the temple, but it's surely not like what Solomon had built. Here comes Herod and says, we need to start moving this thing back to its greatness. And he does this decades-long renovation that he is largely credited with and puts billions of dollars into the Temple Mount complex. You say, well, this sounds like a great guy. No wonder they're calling him Herod the Great. Here's the problem. Herod was a first-rate narcissist. First-rate narcissist. Herod had an infatuation with Herod. Herod loved him some Herod. Everything was about Herod. All these good things... Why is he so generous to the people? To endear the people to him. Why is he building that city as a monument to himself or a monument to Caesar Augustus? Why is he building these fortresses so he has somewhere to go? If the people don't like him, he can run and hide. He won't die. William Barclay writes of him about Herod. Listen, quote, let this sink in. If he suspected, by the way, we get all riled up about our leaders in our country. We do on both sides. We've been doing it for years. We've never had a leader like this, at least to my knowledge we haven't. Barclay writes, if he suspected anyone as a rival to his power, that person was promptly eliminated. That's his, that's his technique. He murdered his wife, Mariamne, and her mother, Alexandra. I know we make a lot of jokes about mother-in-laws. This guy killed his wife and his mother-in-law. His eldest son, Antipater, and two other sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, they liked A's, all assassinated by him. Wife, mother-in-law, three sons. It was so bad that Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor at the time, now he didn't kill him, he way outranks him and he's way over in Rome. But he keeps hearing word of this. Caesar Augustus says, quote, It was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. You got Herod's pig, one of Herod's sons. You're probably going to die. You might live. You're probably going to die too. You're almost certainly going to die. This guy's a madman. He's just insane and suspicious and paranoid and, and just constantly on the alert for anyone that's going to take his power. In fact, guys, listen to this. As he's 70 years old, he's going to die somewhere around 4 B.C., 4 or 5 B.C. He knows it's coming. He's making his way to Jericho. He dies a painful death, they tell us. But the historian Josephus says he was such a nature that he gave orders that hundreds of dignitaries, hundreds of distinguished people in Jerusalem were to be arrested, confined, so that, not because they had done anything wrong, but so that on the day that he died, they would be killed. You say, why in the world? Did did they do something? No, it's not anything they did wrong. His plan was kill them because I know no one will cry on the day I die and I want weeping on the day I die. So find some good people, kill them so they'll be weeping through the land. I don't think that was carried out, but that was his order that he left. Look at verse number 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I cannot state this as a fact, but I'm going to propose to you, when the Bible says he's troubled and all Jerusalem is troubled with Herod, what I think this means is Jerusalem is troubled that Herod is troubled. That's what they're troubled about. 
Everybody's anxious. What's everybody in? Herod's troubled. Oh, no. Why is that a big problem? Because when Herod gets troubled and suspicious and paranoid, people die and blood is shed. And if you look ahead at next week's passage, you'll see that's exactly what happens. Herod, listen, is a usurper. He's not even Jewish. He's an Idumean. He's an Edomite. He's not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Jewish line. He's Abraham, Isaac, Esau. He's of Esau. He's not even a Jew. He had, he had connections with Rome. Rome puts him in place. And so he's an outsider ruling over the Jews. And he's very jealous for his position. He hates anyone seen as a rival. Along comes Jesus, the giver of life. And Matthew is contrasting Jesus with Herod, the murderous taker of life. If you want to write this down, Jeff, who do you think Herod represents? Herod represents all those people for thousands of years throughout history who have responded to the revelation of Jesus with hatred because they want self-rule. They love themselves. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. They sure don't want God telling them what to do. And so they hate the revelation of Jesus Christ. Herod is that person. He represents that group. Hey, guys, can I just touch this real quick? When I was a kid, I'm 49 years old, I didn't really know of anyone who would outwardly even give wording that came across like they hated God. But that has really grown in America. We live in a country where it's becoming more and more common for people to hate God. I'm going to go one further. The more well-known you are, we call them celebrities, the more well-known you are and you make your faith known, the other celebrities that hate God are really going to attack those people. They are after them. If someone's a great singer, then watch out. If you come out and, and announce your faith because the others who hate God, Hollywood is anti-God. I'm just telling you that right now. They hate. I, I read where one, I won't even say the, the specifics of it, but some actress came out verbally attacking some actor. He needs to come out because he's associated himself with a specific church that's a multi-site church around the world. And apparently there's one of these in, in Los Angeles and he's associated with that. And her, her big thing is he needs to come out and say that church's stance on the gay lesbian issue and all of those things. Guys, do you realize what is happening here? If you just declare what the Bible has declared for 3,500 years, people think that it is your opinion that you have hatred. And in fact, the girl was saying they pretend these people are welcome, but they need to, he needs to say what their real agenda is behind. No, what they're saying is God's word is against sexual sin, adultery. God's word is against lying. It's against killing. killing. And she'd probably say, yeah, I agree with that. But for 3,500 years, it's been saying these other things are sin. And now America in the last 25, 25 years is like, you can't say that anymore. It's wrong. It's, it's shameful if you're associated with that. And it's like, wait a minute. We're just saying what God says. It's not a better than this is sin and that is sin and that is sin. And God hates sin. But God calls us all and he welcomes us to come to Christ. Nothing wrong with that message. They hate Christ. Verse 4 through 8, I'll not reread it. But there's a second group that has a totally different response. And that's the priests and the scribes. You catch it? So there's these priests who are generally associated as being Sadducees. The chief priests and the scribes, these were typically be associated with the Pharisees. And they're going to make up the Sanhedrin, the council that has, has ruling authority in Israel. And so Herod has some questions, and he brings together the scribes and the chief priests. And what do they respond? I'm going to associate them with this word. Watch. Indifferent. They don't hate Jesus. 
They're just indifferent to Jesus. He asks them a question, where's the Christ? i got a question, guys, I need some answers. Where's the Christ supposed to be born? Let this sink in. They have Bible knowledge. They know some facts. They give him the right answer. They do not have chapter and verse. They don't have a Bible like this. They have scrolls. They can go find the Micah scroll. They can scroll up to the portion, point to the section right here. This prophet, Micah, 700 years in advance, says the Messiah, the Christ, must be born in Bethlehem. And they read, and you have it there in your Bible in verse number 6. Very knowledgeable, but here's the problem with these guys. Watch. They have religious knowledge. They know a lot of facts. They've accumulated these things. Again, know the Bible. But they've never appropriated it for themselves. They've never surrendered to the Bible. They don't delight in the Bible. We'll eventually get to this in chapter 7. But guys, I'm, I'm being honest with you. There are many, many, many people, some alive today, maybe even in this room, who have accurately told someone how to go to heaven by putting their faith in Christ. I mean accurately, talked how God is holy. He cannot tolerate our sin. I mean, they know this. They give verses. And it is accurate. And they're telling a lost person this. But God, He has to punish our sin. And so you're headed for hell as you are. And this person is listening. But God loves you and gave His Son. He became flesh so that He could die. And they tell this person, Jesus has paid for your sins. Ultimately, they tell them that God is gracious. And if you'll just put your faith in what Jesus did and believe the promises of the Lord, you can go to heaven. And they lead people to Christ, but they're in hell today themselves. They knew the facts. They knew the facts. Led other people to Christ. You say, Jeff, that doesn't really happen. I'll promise you it happens. There are people in hell today who knew the facts but never surrendered and sure didn't delight. Here's what we have. Hey, guys, where's the Christ supposed to be born? Well, our records show it. He has to be born in Bethlehem. Correct. Let that sink in. They're told they're Christ, they're king, the anointed one, the Messiah. They've been longing. And there's a lot of messianic expectation at this time. The chief priests and the scribes are told he's in Bethlehem. And they have better things to do than to go check it out for themselves. You say, well, maybe they were really busy and they didn't have time to go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Here's the thing. From Jerusalem to Bethlehem is five or six miles. You say, five or six miles? A long time ago they didn't have a train or cars or motorcycles. Listen to me. Watch. You can walk that fast. See how fast I'm walking? I'm not running. You'd be in Bethlehem in two hours. Oh, he has to be in the... These guys have come from far. Where, where is he? Where's who? The Christ, the King, the newborn baby. We've seen his star. Oh, well, he has to be in Bethlehem. Okay, y'all go check it out. Wait, does nothing in you say, we need to go check this out? Nah, y'all go check it out. We're good. We've got stuff to do. That alarms me. Herod represents those people who hate Jesus. But boy, these chief priests and scribes, who do they represent to me? Two kinds of people. Watch. They represent people who have a lot of religious, maybe even biblical knowledge, but no heart for God. They got the head knowledge, no heart for God. But they also represent a second group who's just totally indifferent to Christ. Totally indifferent. Again, just will not go to Bethlehem themselves. Two hours over. Hey, really? They think he's been born. Hey, 
Grab stuff. Hey, you got some money? We'll hit McDonald's on the way. We'll go check it out. We'll go around, look at all the houses. On the way back, we'll hit Starbucks. We should be back before supper. Let's go do it. Nobody does that. They send the wise men. Before I leave that, listen. This group's bigger than the first group. First group's growing. Those who hate Jesus. This group that is indifferent to Christ is probably the largest. I feel confident it is the largest of the three responses. Many people in Anderson County, you know them. Fat watch. If you put them on a lie detector, I mean put them on a lie detector, do you believe there's a God? Yes. Tell them the truth. They really believe there's a God. Do you know that you've sinned? Yeah, I know I've sinned. Do you know that God, you said you believe in God, and apparently you do, Do you know that he doesn't like sin? Yes, I know that. Has anyone in your life ever talked about being saved from sin? That there is this God who doesn't like your sin, who has to punish your sin. He's willing to save you. Oh, yeah, and they literally would say, yeah, I've got a co-worker, I've got a family member, I've got a neighbor, I've got a good friend. They've asked me if I've ever been saved. Guys, my point is, though they know these things, they have better things to do than to take a couple of hours on a Sunday... Come to the house of God, not that you could trust everyone in Anderson County, but there's a lot of churches this morning preaching truth about Jesus. They have better things to do than to go to the house of God. They'll take Jesus' name in vain. Don't take anyone else's name in vain other than God and Jesus Christ, who is God. They'll take His name in vain, but they won't take time to study this whole thing about what it means to be saved. And they're going to pay for it through eternity. Why? Because they're just, oh, I hate Him. Let's not have time for Him. Got better things to do. Please don't shrug off Christ. Obviously, you know where I'm going. There's a third response. And it's the wise men worshipped. Herod had hatred. Chief priests and scribes just dismiss, disinterest, indifferent. Praise the Lord, the wise men worshipped. Now, here's where we're going to kind of speculate. I want to begin this with a quote from Warren Wearsby. He writes the following. So listen carefully. I want to hit who are they? When are we talking about? Ultimately, what did they do? It's not a hard outline, but let your mind go. Who are these guys? Wearsby writes the following. He says, the word translated wise men, magi, refers to a group of scholars who studied the stars. He says their title, Magi, connects them with magic, but they were probably more like astrologers, unquote. So let me say, that does not mean that when this is put in the Bible, that the Bible is endorsing astrology. The Bible does talk about astronomy and how there can be, the, the, you know, there are signs and the seasons, and it's very clear we're planning on spring to follow wintertime. Got a little taste of it this week, and I really like that. Really like when... Spring invades wintertime, like it did a little bit this week. So again, this is not an endorsement of astrology. But this is this group of people. They're very wise, very knowledgeable, very influential. Some have even called them kings, though I don't think they were kings. They may have been king makers. These may have been guys that were so influential they would determine who would be kings of the east. All we're told is a direction that they came from. I'm going to propose to you they very well may have been descendants of that group of guys that Daniel saved their life when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Do you remember that? 
Remember Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, has this very troubling dream. And so he wakes up and he wants the wise men in the kingdom. Bring all the wise men together. I want them to tell, them, tell me the meaning of my dream. So they all get together and they say, all right, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. He says, nah, very suspicious fella. He says, you know what? If you really have the gift that you have, then you just tell me what my dream is and the interpretation. They're like, well, anyway, tell us the dream. We'll give you the interpretation. He says, no, you're not understanding me. I want you to tell me my dream and the interpretation. Like, we can't tell you the interpretation if you don't tell us a dream. If your gift is real, you'd be able to do that. And he gets really tired because they can't tell him his dream and certainly not the interpretation. His determination is just kill them all. My Lord, kill them all. I'm tired of that. Get rid of them. And Daniel is lumped in with that group. Daniel hears what's going to happen. He says, well, time out. I'm paraphrasing. Y'all know this, right? Time out. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's a God who knows men's hearts and knows dreams and the interpretation of dreams. Give me just a little time. Daniel ends up coming to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, King, you had a dream. Of course I did. You had a dream of an image. Say what? You had a dream of an image. And your image has a gold head. How do, how do, how, how do, you, how do you know this? Because there's a God. And he has a silver chest. And he has a bronze abdomen. And he goes on down the line. And he says, and that's exactly my dream. What does this thing mean? And he goes down and he tells him. And things end up happening exactly like Daniel says. And Daniel's like, don't kill those guys. Don't kill me. And so he calls off the dogs. These guys owe their lives to Daniel. And so Daniel would have been moved high on the list. And all of a sudden, he's a Hebrew and a Jew. And they have this Old Testament. And these wise men are going to start studying the writings of the Jews. And here, 600 years later, they have a revelation that the king of the Jews has been born somewhere in Palestine. They come to the capital city. Where has he been born? They hear that he's born in Bethlehem. Had to blow their mind. How do we know that your king is born? But you guys don't know that your king is born. Very troubling. Look at verse 11. Look at it quickly. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, opening their treasures, offered gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I want to touch on this just for a moment, so maybe we can clarify. Watch. What is the time frame that we're looking here? If We won't take the time, but if we were to go to the Gospel of Luke, we would find that after Mary has Jesus... Forty days later, according to the Old Testament, because he's the firstborn male child, you dedicate him and you offer an animal. You offer a lamb for the firstborn. But if you're poor, then you can't afford an animal, a lamb, and so you could offer birds, pigeons, turtle doves. Joseph and Mary, according to Luke, offer the birds, which means they're too poor for an animal. So let that sink in. If this scene that we just read this morning had happened early on, right after the birth of Christ, then it would have been wrong for them to offer birds because they're sitting on gold, right? This stuff sells for $1,300 and some dollars an ounce right now. It's always been the chief metal. And on top of that, these other these gifts of frankincense and myrrh, they're not poor people at this point, but at one point, 40 days after the birth of Christ, they are poor and they can rightly... Offer bird sacrifices. Add to that this thought. Look at verse 11 again, real quickly. Going into the house. The word house has now replaced manger. Verse number 11 also says, they fell down in worship. Uh, going into the house, they saw the child. The word child has now replaced babe. Jeff, what's your point? My point is 
that the wording seems to insinuate, putting the two Gospels together, Jesus is not brand new born baby. He is between one and two years old. And if you will look ahead to next week's text where Herod is going to have all the children, he's going to run his calculation, and when the wise men do not come back to him, he's going to go kill the babies and try to exterminate Jesus. And so to do it, he's going to take enough of a swath of age, he's going to go two years old and under. So that kind of tells you, Jesus at this point here is between one and two years old. Jeff, what's your point? When the wise men come in, they don't see any miracles. They don't see any miracles. They don't hear powerful teaching. You say, what are they seeing here? A little one, one and a half year old baby learning how to stand and wobble and hold on to mama's knee and put his little head down. Hey, buddy, they're here to see you. Learning a word, learn how to wobble and talk. And that's what they see, and that's not impressive. But because they have a revelation from God, and these men have faith, they see in that little babbling toddler a king. I don't know that they knew he was God, but they see a king, and they bow, and they worship him. These grown men, intelligent, powerful men, bow and worship Jesus the Christ by faith. And then they open their treasures, and they offer him gifts. And the gifts are significant. They appear to point towards something. What do they offer him? Gold. Again, I don't know if it's bags of gold. Wouldn't have necessarily had coins. Maybe it was goblets and plates and cups and, and who knows what it was. They give him gold. And again, maybe it was open up. Look, buddy, and he gets that. And I don't even know how to appreciate gold. Okay, that's nice for a little one-year-old. But they're bringing, why gold? If they honestly in heart believe that this little toddler is a king, then it is very fitting to give a king gold. What's up with this frankincense? Frankincense, incense, is something that priests would use in offering sacrifices to God and try to have this billowing smoke and this smell associated with their offerings to deity. So they bring frankincense. And what's up with this myrrh? It's the most unique one. Myrrh, what's that for? Anointing bodies. Perfume, gummy, resin. Oh, like, okay, but, yeah, but here's the thing. It's for anointing dead bodies. What are you doing bringing my son? Myrrh. What kind of gift is that? That's not their attitude. I don't think these guys even know the significance, but their gifts are literally pointing to the identity of this little child. Who is he? He is the king of the Jews. He is the son of God that is worthy of incense. He is the sacrificial lamb of God for sin, and that's why we're bringing this myrrh. They don't even know it, but this myrrh is to anoint a dead body. This child will die a very significant death. Here's my point, guys. Herod hates him. The chief priests and the scribes have better things to do. They dismiss Christ. These... Wise men love him and worship him. Look one more time, verse 10. When they saw the star. So now, they haven't seen it in a while apparently. They're told to go toward Bethlehem and sure enough, the star reappears. Not, notice what Matthew does. He heaps up similar words to try to get across what these guys are going through. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew was heaping words to show abundance of joy, to show giddiness, exuberance, excitement. So i got to ask you, wise men loved Jesus, got excited about Jesus. What do you get excited about? Like, well, I get excited about a new car, a new house, a vacation. I get excited about making 100 on a test. I get excited about a raise. These guys got excited about Jesus so we've seen different responses and we've seen a fulfilled prophecy.
So thirdly this morning, to me, what we have to do before we leave the text is say, okay, yeah, so what? So what? Lessons from wise men. We could look at lessons from Herod and lessons from the chief priests, and hopefully we've drawn some of those already. Don't be like them. Don't hate Christ. Don't dismiss Christ. Don't disregard Him. Don't be indifferent to Jesus. Listen to me. Don't just let that be words. Don't be indifferent to Christ. Somebody here this morning, you say, I am I'm sliding into hatred and bitterness toward God. Don't hate God. Don't be bitter toward God. Be like the wise men for lessons. Number one is brief. Jesus deserves worship from all people. That's a clear lesson. Emphasis. Every word is emphasized. Jesus deserves worship from all people. Jesus deserves worship. Jesus deserves worship. Jesus deserves worship from all people, the Gentiles included. We get in on this. These guys represent us. They're our forerunners. If you love Jesus, if you worship Christ, these are the forerunners to you. They represent you. Why Jesus? Watch. Christ, Jesus, is the creator of all people. He is the Lord of all people. He is the king of all people. Everyone who's ever called himself Lord, he's their Lord. Everyone who's ever called himself a king, including Herod, he's their king. Follow. Only God deserves worship. Only God is to be an object of worship for mankind and for angels. Only God. Jesus is God. Jesus deserves worship. Here's what I find, though. I am like some of you. We are guilty of doing this. We tend to gauge if worship is successful by how I feel. Well, that was a good one today. What made it good? I felt good. I felt good today. That was a good one. Stop. Don't do that. You say, don't feel good when we worship? Feel good when you worship. Don't gauge the success of worship by how you feel. That makes you the object, you the goal. Ask this question, honest question. Was God pleased today? Was God exalted in worship? Jesus deserves worship from all people. Second lesson from the wise men, I think, is I need to... Touch on this for a moment. This one will be a little longer than that one. But I want you to get it. Here's, here's the lesson. Worship is better than cold knowledge. Worship is better than cold knowledge. I want to say it again. Grace View. Worship, real worship, is better than cold. Jeff, you against knowledge? Oh, no, no. We're for knowledge. We're for Bible knowledge. Worship is better than cold knowledge. Would you look at the screen? I'm going to read John chapter 4, verse number 24. Jesus' commentary on God. Watch this verse. It's important. It's a classic statement on the nature of God from His Son. Here's what, God, here's what Jesus says. Watch. God is spirit. King James says, God is a spirit. So don't let that wording say, oh, all spirit is God. No, God is spirit. All spirit's not God. God is a spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship Him, you say, I want to be like the wise men. I want to be a worshiper of Jesus. Those who worship Him must, this is not a suggestion, this is a have to. Jesus says, if you worship God, He's spirit, you must worship Him in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Verse number 24, God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit is lowercase. This doesn't just mean that you have to worship God in the Holy Spirit. It means you have to worship God with your spirit. Your spirit, because God is spirit. You say, I want to worship God. It is not merely about bowing down or raising a hand or writing a check or putting in a dollar or doing some service. It is more than that. Your spirit has to be engaged. It has to be with spirit and with truth. Both are united. But hear me say, yeah, truth. Truth, that's the key thing. Worship is better than cold knowledge. Now here's a little rabbit trail. I want you to follow me. Do y'all know the first high priest of Israel? Moses' brother? What was his name? Aaron. I want you to think with me. Some of you are heading into Exodus and Leviticus right now and you're reading. I believe the first time Aaron puts on the high priest's garments and they're linen and white and a breastplate and he has this naser, this headpiece. It's beautiful. But it's humbling. And I think it would be sobering. This is getting ready to happen. But when they take animal blood and put it on his ear and on his foot. But guys, I believe when they take animal blood and put a hyssop branch that's very leafy. And they take the hyssop branch and they sling blood on Aaron as the high priest. It hits home real quick. There's a cost to sin. Look what just happened to these garments. Yeah, well, that's what's going to be your life. Being priest does not mean you kind of sashay around Jerusalem with your robes swaying back and forth, looking important, with a set of scrolls under your arm. Oh, priest, preacher, guys, big Bible. It's not the point. This is very, very sobering. I believe each priest, even not the high priest, each priest would have a moment in their serving time where it is very sobering and very heavy and weighty and serious and somber but honoring and and humbling. And then they're given their first assignment to take a knife. And as a cow is being held down, a bull, their job is to saw. And that's has got to cut through this, this hide and ultimately saw the jugular vein. And it's going to splash up on them. Right about then it starts getting really real. Like, wait, man, I'm all nervous about this job. But I'm getting splattered in the face. And I'm getting all that. And I've got to cut this head off and do something with the hide. Do something with the entrails. And I've got to take this leg. And I've got to take this part of the loin. I've got to do all these things. And this is boiled. And that's... That's roasted and, and these eat that and that there gets burned up completely and it's like, it hits them in the face. Guys, I believe the first time priests come in and they get to go behind the curtain. Not the main curtain, but the first curtain and they get to go in there and they work at the table of showbread. Man, that's a humbling thing. And then they work at the, the altar of incense that's right before you go into the holy place. They don't go in there, only the high priest goes in there. But they're working over at the candlestick. Man, this is all weighty stuff and they're feeling the weight of it. It's wonderful Scary and reverential and powerful, but man, it's got their full attention. So Jeff, what are you hitting at? Worship is better than cold knowledge. My, my idea here is cold, experiential, done it, knowledge. Write this down. Ultimately, time can make sacred things seem to become common.
I want you all to hear that. Many of you work in very difficult situations. Some of you work in a place you're the only Christian. Some of you work at home. You're a housekeeper and you've got little kids or you're checking homework. Others of you are trying to run a company. I mean, you're stressed out all the time. And you look at those of us who get to work around here at Graceview and other churches in the area, and you're like, man, they got the life. I'm going to tell you, we get to be around sacred things all the time, but I want you to listen. There is a danger because time can make sacred things seem to become common. God encounters. Taken for granted. Oh, we'll go to church today. We'll go down to Graceview, and we'll have a God encounter, and God will come in, and I'll feel it. It happens every week. It'll happen again. Careful. Samson has the touch of God and the power on his life, but he keeps disobeying and going away from God's command. All of a sudden he goes out one day. He doesn't even know it anymore. God is not with him, and he's out on his own. It's dangerous. We need your prayers. You need our prayers, but I'm telling you, those of us that work in this all the time and we're around it constantly, every day, not just personal reading, but studying for things and standing and speaking or sitting and speaking for the things of God, it's dangerous out there. It is dangerous. And I think that's what these people in, back in Matthew have fallen prey to. Jeff, what's your point? I think nothing surprised the priests and the scribes anymore. You're in John 4. Flip back. Well, maybe you weren't there, but look over at John chapter 1. I want you to see this. I don't think it's written only for them, but I think it applies to this group of people. I think verses John 1, verses 9 through 11 apply very well to the priests and the scribes that are in Matthew 2. Look at verse number 9. Look at this with your eyes. The Bible says, John 1, 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is Jesus. He was in the world. John's writing in A.D. 90. He's looking back many years earlier, decades and decades ago when he writes this. He, the light, was in the world and the world was made through him. Here he is. He made all this. Yet the world, John keeps using the same word, but now he's moved the meaning. Now he's no longer talking about a planet. Now he's talking about people. Yet the world did not know him. God, the creator, entered his creation. Creation doesn't know it's him. It gets worse. He came to his own. So he comes to creation, the domain that he's created. This is what God did. And his own people, that means the Jews, his own people did not receive him. He can't, you would think if anyone's going to receive the Christ, God becomes flesh, looks Jewish. He is a Jewish man. They'll flock to him. No, they don't. And they begin in Matthew chapter 2 at his birth. We've got better things to do. This guy hates him. These other guys are indifferent. Just dismissed. They don't care. Why? Because we're busy studying and reading and memorizing and answering trivia questions about the Bible. Verse number 12 but to all who did receive him, and they don't, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name. What does it mean to receive him? To receive him means to believe in his name, to believe in the person of Christ. Well, what happens if someone does that? He gave the right to become the children of God. He came to his own domain, presented himself. The Jews reject him, and many Gentiles and a few Jews have accepted him. Not all Gentiles. Certainly not all Jews, but some who fit verse 12 received him. And they get to be called the children of God. Would you go back to Matthew 2? I believe John 1 
applies to the chief priests and the scribes. Say, okay, Jeff, that's great. What does that have to do with us? Grace, we want you to hear me. Listen carefully. Be careful. You, be careful. We too can hear words like mercy, mercy, grace, cross. We even have one right there. Some of you have it on your neck right now. Mercy, grace, cross, hell, heaven, eternal life. We hear not many weeks in the year do you not hear each one of those words every time you come to church. I'm not going to say you hear the word cross every time, but about every time you come to church. You say, Jeff, what's the danger? They can lose their force eventually. Do you know mercy is a powerful word? Grace, powerful. Cross, powerful. Hell, fearful. Heaven, joyful, hopeful. Some of you are like, man, it stinks right now down here. Heaven is really, really good. Eternal life is awesome. But we get used to hearing it. Worship is better than cold knowledge, cold experience. I'm telling you the truth. I wish this wasn't true. I'm telling you the truth. Today, many, 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 we're in the eastern time zone. It is right now sweeping across the country. Many Sunday school teachers, many worship team leaders and song leaders, and yes, many, many pastors will go through the motions today. They're just going to go through the motions. Why? They've done it hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. They used to feel the weight of it, and literally in the early days, they begged God, Lord, please help my class. God, please work through me. Lord, show me what this means. Don't let me say anything that's wrong. Worship leaders, song leaders, God, please, just let me not be seen. Just let me get lost in it. Lord, just let us worship it, please. And they're begging and they're pleading. Pastors, Lord, please. This scares me to death, because I know it's a fact. Many pastors today just going through the motions. Lord, please don't let it be me. Now, thankfully, there's another group of people that are in our churches. And here's the thing. Not always, but sometimes they don't look like the part. And they don't know all that they know. Doesn't matter. These people are just worshiping God, confessing their sins, really, really praying, really, really singing, really, really listening. They're not like, oh, I already know all of that. I mean, they're soaking it all in. Again, they don't look like it. They don't know everything those people know. But they are locked into the Lord. And they're just grateful for mercy and grace in the cross. Which group are you in? I mean this, what I'm about to say. I typed this the other day and I mean it with all my heart. I am not concerned if I ever pastor a church that dresses to impress. I really don't care about that. So you say, Jeff, you don't care about how people dress? I think we need to dress modestly and I think there are things that are immodest. But as far as being impressive and fancy and having dress codes and guidelines, I just don't find it in here for us. It doesn't matter. I honestly don't care if I'm ever part of a staff that is well-connected and well-known. And to my knowledge, nobody on staff here is like really well-known out in the circles. doesn't matter. If God ever does that, that's, that's fine. That's his business. But I really don't care. You say, Jeff, then what do you care about? Here's what I'm, I really care about. Are we a saved church? Are we a saved church? Are we a maturing church? Growing in Christ, reproducing, loving, and loving. Here's my thought. 
Are we a worshiping church? That's what I'm concerned about. Are we a worshiping, Grace View, are we a worshiping church? Several questions. Is it real? Is it church-wide or just a few? There's a pocket. Over there's a little pocket. Oh, there's a little patch of them over there. Is it real? Is it church-wide? Is it every day? Or is it just 16 minutes on Sunday? Is it every day? Is it merely internal? Oh, I'm worshiping the Lord inside. Okay. Is it merely internal and not going to let anybody see anything on the external? Worse, is it merely external? Very expressive on the outside. No spirit engaged on the inside. I guess my main question is this. For you, you. I wish I had time to look at all of us and I'm asking me this. Are you in on it? Are you in on it? Or be honest. Say, Jeff, I'm not in on it. I'm a spectator. I'm looking at others. Worse, I'm not just a spectator. I'm a critic. I'm evaluating. Shame on you. Don't be that way. So, Jeff, what are you saying? Truth's not important? Oh, truth matters. We make a big deal about truth around here. We're always going to preach Bible messages and teach Bible lessons and sing Bible songs. Why? Truth matters, but here's my point. Truth is not a cul-de-sac. Jeff, what do you mean? Truth is not a cul-de-sac. Cul-de-sac doesn't go anywhere. You go down there and you just kind of stay there. Truth is to flow and to lead towards something. Yes, we make a big deal about the Word of God. We push and emphasize the Word of God here. But this is not an end to itself. Oh, we got the answers. We know the answers. Learn some more stuff at church today. I grew in my knowledge. Wonderful. Where's it going? The purpose of being so emphasizing on the Scripture is it so that we will know God. We will know who He is and that we will trust Him. The more I'm learning about you, I can really trust you even when the circumstances seem really different. You are trustworthy and we can love Him and we can please Him better by how we live. That's the purpose. It has to go somewhere. It is not a dead end cul-de-sac. So I want to encourage you guys, grow in your knowledge this year, but let your knowledge lead you to worship. Those of you, some of you right here, you read your Bible on a regular basis. I want to encourage you, keep reading the Scripture, but slow down, be intentional, ask the Lord to teach you so that you can implement it and apply it into your life. God, would you give us spiritual wisdom And then on the heels of that, would you give us spiritual understanding for 2019? Third thought, much shorter. I see the clock. I can actually see the clock today. That's why I'm late sometimes. People block the clock. Today I can see it. I'm lying. I'm lying. I always finish my message. Not always. I usually finish my message no matter what the clock says, but I'm aware. Number three, what are the lessons from the wise man? Jesus deserves worship from all people. Worship is a whole lot better than just cold knowledge. You want truth and spirit, but number three, true worship requires humility. I really want you to taste this. I'm not going to take long, but I want everybody in here, I want you to hear it. We just talked about worship. I look at these wise men, I learned this lesson. True worship requires humility. Write this down. If I could say it ten times. 
True worshipers do not seek to get noticed. True worshipers do not seek to get noticed. True worshipers seek for God to be exalted. These wise men came to see, they didn't come to be seen. These men are grown men bowing to a toddler. These men, humanly speaking, are very intelligent, very powerful people. These are very wealthy people, but in the presence of Jesus, they realize their smallness, their weakness, their poverty, their ignorance. We're in the presence of true greatness. We don't even have their names, but it doesn't matter. Who they are doesn't matter. Who you are doesn't matter. You're significant when you are worshiping and serving Christ, and only then. True worship. Just requires some humility. Boy, these guys had it. Number four. True worship. And I mean, if it's true, not only does it require humility and Jesus deserves it, and it's a lot better than cold knowledge, but if it's real, true worship, guys, always leads to sacrifice. And you would have had that as a point if you had read this ten times. You're like, man, what's the point? God, what are you trying to show us? Lesson. True worship. You're like, I'm a worshiper and I want to be a worshiper. Okay, if it's real, true worship always leads to sacrifice. And I have to give these two thoughts and I'll be done. These men very easily, by the way, they're powerful. They're leaders. I don't think they were kings, but they probably helped appoint and determine kings. They're over people. There's no doubt about that. They very easily could have said this. Well, we've had this revelation There's this king of the Jews. Tell you what. Get their stuff together. Pick a few guys. Y'all take it over. Here's a letter from us. Sign it. Put all the important people's names on there. Roll it up. Take it and expect a thank you letter to come back. Why? We're busy. We don't have the months it would take to go do this. They don't do that, guys. They literally sacrifice their lives, their time. Everything's put on hold to go spend time, months, to go 1,500 plus miles over to Jerusalem and then ask questions around Jerusalem and then finally make their way to have a time to worship Jesus Christ. They sacrifice their time. So I have to ask you this. Your time is not less valuable than mine. But we arrogantly walk around like everybody else's time is not as valuable as ours. Your time's not less valuable than mine. It's important. It's limited. Some of us have more limited time. Here's my question. When's the last time or how often do you on a regular basis just say, God, here's my time. I'm going to sacrifice it to you because I'm going to spend some time in private. Thank you for being here this morning. I hope you came for the right reason to be with Christ and his people. You have given of your time. Sunday morning is very, very valuable. Thank you for coming. But do you do that in private? These guys gave of their time. And I never want to be accused of a preacher that always preaches on giving. And those of you that come on a regular basis know like, yeah, you probably need to do a little more of that, Jeff. But verse number 11 says, then opening their treasures. Simple question. Are your treasures open? Or are they closed? Thankfully, I have no clue who gives and who gives how much. I think three or four people know who gives and how much. And the main one who knows that doesn't come to church here. She goes to another church. I have no idea who does what. And I like it that way. If you are not a giver, I have to ask you. You say, I I, I just don't give. Why not? What are you waiting on? But particularly you say, 
by God's grace, I am a giver at Grace View, then I have to ask you some honest questions. When you bring your tithe or offering to the Lord through Grace View, and by the way, I believe there is New Testament grounds for giving to the Lord through the local church. I can defend that. That'll be another message. You don't want me to take 25 minutes to do that right now, I promise. When you bring your tithe or offering to the Lord through Grace View, is it really to the Lord? Or are you just giving to Grace View? Don't do that. Give to the Lord through your local church. My question, be honest, is your heart attached? Whether in the moment, right here, as we're bowing and praying or watching a video and the plate comes by you and you drop something in, do you literally take a moment, maybe at home when you're writing this out or pulling it out and you literally are praying and attaching your heart to that, this is my gift to you, Lord. This represents my life. I'm going to spend my time with you, but I'm also going to open up my treasures to you. Everything I have, this represents the whole. Lord, I'm giving it to you. Those of you who give online, that is wonderful. While you're doing that, do you take a moment and say, Now, Lord, this X amount of dollars is from me to you. Would you please use it and receive it as an offering? These guys did it the right way. I want to encourage you. Be faithful. Be consistent. Don't be robotic. Be faithful. Be consistent. Give. Give. And as he blesses you more, you give more. Don't ever be robotic. Lessons. Jesus deserves worship. Worship is a whole lot better than cold knowledge and old experience. Third lesson, true worship requires humility. We want Him to be exalted. I didn't come to be noticed. Lord, I want you to be lifted up. And then true worship, when it's real, always leads to sacrifice. Would you bow your head just for a moment?